0: Yeah, maybe more people are going to feel lucky because uh, this story, among our most read on this Monday, something anticipated, the U.S. Supreme Court legalizing sports gambling. Here with the news today and what it means on the sports and gaming industries is Eben Novi williams sports business reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City. Also with us, former bookmaker Steve Buden. He's CEO at picknation.com. It's an online pay-per-view analysis website in the sports handicapping industry. He's also author of the book, Bets, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Steve, on the phone, from Miami Beach. Eben, over to you, though, because we did a big sports summit and one of the topics was, you know, whether or not we would see the Supreme Court rule this way. And yes, indeed, they did.
1: You're right. Not really a surprise. I think a lot of people who knew about this knew that New Jersey was probably going to win in some way. This is a very wide ruling. It strikes down the entire federal ban. Uh, This means that any state out there is able to uh, legalize sports betting within its jurisdiction. And many, many will. This is going to end up being a pretty seismic shift, not just for the gaming world, but also for the sports world. But
0: it was happening, Evan, in Vegas. Why was it that Vegas was allowed to do it?
1: Sure. So the, the PASPA, which is the federal ban, kind of grandfathered in four states, including Nevada, which was really the only one that was doing any kind of sports gambling as as, as we talk about it right now. Um so they were allowed to do it for forever um, yeah. and New Jersey obviously challenged that, uh, and won in the supreme court um, and yeah, there are a handful of other states, including Pennsylvania, Mississippi, West Virginia, New York, that already have laws ready to go now that now that this ruling exists, and about fifteen others that are considering current legislation. Uh, as we speak. So this is going to happen, uh, maybe not quickly, but but a lot of state legislatures around the country are, are looking at this intently.
0: As I said, off and running. Hey, Steve Buden, come on in on the CEO at PickNation.com, on the phone from Miami Beach. How does this kind of impact what you guys do?
2: Well, it's great for us as a handicapping company, because obviously, the more readily available sports betting is to the community, the more interest there is in getting advice on who to bet on. But I mean, when we look at the winners and losers in this scenario. The big winners here that um, your previous guest didn't mention is DraftKings and Vandal because, yes, you know, on the state level, there's going to be a lot of local bookmakers now. Your, your local racetrack, your local casino will be taking your bet. Obviously, with this thing passing in New Jersey, it doesn't mean Vinny on the corner can now open up a store in Jersey and start dealing sportsbook. He can't. You know, so this is really a big win for the big guys, but for the little guys, this doesn't mean anything. The big loser here is the, 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 little, the little bookies on the corner. You know, they, they obviously all go out of business at this point, except for the ones that are extending large credit to customers. They'll keep their customers, but for offshore sportsbooks and the local bookies, this is doomsday. But for FanDuel and DraftKings, who, unlike the local guys, can go and get licensing in every state and go right. to about 32 states in the country, oh, my God. They go from two companies that were having a hard time turning a profit to looking like geniuses.
0: All right, so come on back in, Evan, because you've you you know you've done a lot of work on this. I mean, who do you guys see as some of the winners here?
1: Yeah, there's no question that for DraftKings and FanDuel, the, the pivot to sports betting, which is already underway, uh, is going to be a boon for them. Uh, you certainly look at the big companies, William Hill, one of the biggest bookmakers in the world. You wrote a great story in Bloomberg um, Business Week on this. Thank you, yeah, and, and MGM, you know, Caesars, uh, all these, Boyd Gaming, you know, if you own Casinos around the country. This is likely a great thing for you if you own a a massive sports betting property in the UK, for example, Paddy Power, Betfair, Bet365. Those companies uh, will be descending on the U.S. uh, pretty quickly if they haven't already. Uh, Steve's right. This is uh, if you are a big company in in the gambling world or the sports gambling world world, worldwide. uh, This is a great deal for you because the U.S. market is so so big. Evan, does it make all the black market gambling go away? I mean, I wouldn't say it all goes away. Uh, Steve's right. The people who are being able to bet on credit through their own bookie uh, are going to like to keep that feature. William Hill will never let you do that. Um, mm-hmm. There are also benefits in terms of if you don't want your spouse to know, you don't want your gambling showing up on your credit card statement, uh, y- your local bookie will let, you, uh, will let you do that as well. Uh, so it doesn't – I don't think this totally – kills the uh, the offshore market. Um, but yeah, certainly there are a lot of people out there who were betting uh, in folks based in Curacao because there was no option here in the U.S. And now that if their state comes online, they have a legal option. I would imagine a lot of that to turn over.
0: What does this do, Steve, kind of to the global uh, gambling market, gaming market?
1: Well, I,
2: I think I think it allows the U.S. to get into it. So, for instance, once the U.S. is dealing uh, 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 basketball, baseball, and football, there's nothing that stops. Just like he talks about William Hill coming in here, which they've already done, and they've infiltrated Vegas about they started about five years ago with a little machines that you can bet on in all the places those are run by William Hill. Um, it allows U.S. companies now to look at soccer and to look at other emerging markets and even U.S. sports in those in those countries because what we know what we. Ne- what we never hear about. We know how popular soccer is in London to bet on, but we don't know that right after soccer and cricket, the number one bet on sports is, is U.S. basketball. So there's a big market opening up for U.S. companies right. in Europe to turn around and, and, and offer that product to them.
0: Hey, Evan, one last question. So what about the sports leagues and teams involved? Haven't some of them already said, hey, listen, we should get a 1% piece of the pie or some percentage piece of the pie?
1: Yeah, publicly they're saying right now that you know they're, they're looking at the law and they're worried about their integrity and, and And their games, uh, the truth is that they're going to benefit tremendously off of this. You know, fan engagement is going to go higher, and that means media rights are going to sell for more. There's going to be more advertisers, people spending more for ads. There's going to be, you know, there's more sponsorships. The the valuation of teams is about to go up significantly because of this. Every piece of the sports business world is going to get a little boost from this because it's going to drive fan engagement to a level that we haven't seen in the U.S.
0: Evan, just got about 15 seconds here. Is there an investment play here? Is it the resorts or something? Like, I looked at MGM. And they popped, and then they've kind of backed off Yeah, a, bit. a lot
1: of them are popping. Scientific Games, which is a slot-making company, uh, popped a bunch. I mean, they were up, I think, 12% at some point today. Yeah. Uh, there's no question that investors uh, in the U.S. and in Europe were, were waiting on this, uh, and there was a lot of movement right after the uh, announcement.
0: Yeah, Scientific Games still up about 12%. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Novi Williams joining us uh, in our New York studio, along with Steve Buden, CEO at PickNation.com, on the phone from Miami Beach.
2: Sleep down in the soil. Nothing think i wrong. From-
0: at a surge. WTI crude oil features, they are up more than 58% since the low of just under $45 a barrel. That was back in late June of 2017, so not quite one year ago. Our next guest believes that this market is, quote, richly priced. Walter Zimmerman is our guest, chief technical analyst at ICAP. He joins us on the phone from Jersey City, New Jersey. Hey, nice to have you here. We've all been watching the move up in oil prices. Uh, do you think we're getting to a point where it kind of tops out?
3: I think we're getting dangerously close. And there is a seasonal element to all of this. Uh, Crude oil typically bottoms in Q1 and peaks into the spring. And a big component of the typical winter to spring rally are Mideast fears. And we have the latest iteration of that uh, driving these markets higher. Uh, So um, I I could see a little bit higher. but. One of the things that concerns me is this continual widening of the Brent WTI spread. You know, this is a sign that uh, WTI is having increasingly trouble, increasingly uh, difficulty um, keeping in the bull uh, game here.
0: Okay. So how would you trade this market right now?
3: Well, uh, first of all um, – Or would you? (laughs) I do think there is a little bit more room to the upside here. But whatever is remaining on the upside is probably more a gift to crude oil producers everywhere from Saudi Arabia to the Permian Basin and less a tradable move for investors. Um, I would think any further upside is probably more prudent to be scaled up taking profits if you're an investor and certainly scaled up hedging if you're a producer.
0: You know, it's interesting, too. um, You know, I do always wonder, do we get to the point where, you know, it hits a certain point, and people start to back off on demand. And so it just kind of, you know, writes itself. Uh, Do we get to that point anytime soon as well?
3: Well, given the time of the year, you have to think, yes, you have to think that um, the The enthusiasm will wane, and I think you 're already seeing that in wti here 's Brent up a dollar twenty one right now wTI only up thirty three cents to me that 's a big warning sign, and I think what 's behind that warning is you have seven thousand seven hundred plus Drilled but uncompleted wells in the oh, yeah. lower 48 states, just waiting for higher prices to be released on the market. And I think that's why people are finding it increasingly uh, difficult to go chasing WTI any higher.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I don't know, what are you hearing from the major oil companies or some of the drillers? I mean, are people, because of the move up, you know, aggressively putting on? Uh, more production, making more capital expenditures and investments to go after more oil because it's gone up? Or is everybody being a little bit cautious here? Because it's not so long ago that oil was a very different market.
3: Yes, indeed. And if you've been in oil any length of time, you know how cyclical it is. You know what goes up must come down. And everybody's aware of these literally thousands of drilled but uncompleted wells so i i think there's an understandable reluctance to be euphoric up here and to be more cautious because the reality is whatever iranian crude comes off the water there will undoubtedly be a list of sources more than willing to make up the difference and it's just a matter of time and price before whatever shortfall is uh is resolved by, uh, mm-hmm. by the many countries and sources within the U.S. Are willing and able to pump more.
0: Right. There's plenty of places to go, right, to make up for any kind of slack or lack in the market.
3: A- absolutely. Absolutely. And this goes back to spring is Mideast fear time. It's almost the, the East fear rally in crude oil has almost become as reliable as the first robin over these last few days. It's reason to be cautious. It's reason to be more in the mode of scaled up taking profits than scaled up adding to length.
0: Um, when you look at kind of the global picture and the relationships between the U.S. and its European allies, and you look at what's going on in the Middle East, uh, certainly today, um, you know... What relationships do you think, and you look at China as well, let's throw that in, right, in terms of their needs and the relationships that they've certainly been forging in the last couple of years when it comes to oil and really any commodity for that, for that matter. Um, what global relationships do you find the most interesting?
3: Well, I, what I find interesting is that the U.S. is now a, a crude oil and that energy exporter and that petroleum exporter. And that changes the balance of everything. Because in the old days, when we were a net importer, we would always officials would always decry uh, what OPEC was doing. But now it's as if almost uh, there's a a a silent rooting for higher prices going on. And uh, clearly, Europe is not in that in that phase, and and neither is China. So. Uh, What I've been seeing is, over the last several years, a shift where the U.S. is not only becoming a net exporter of energy, but starting to act like one.
0: That's kind of interesting. How long can they do that for, though?
3: Well, if you look at what's available in terms of the shale fields, They can do this for for quite a bit more years. And the only limitation has been how quickly can they build out the new pipelines to hook up these 7,700 wells. So it's just a matter of logistics and building out the extra pipeline. And one thing people have been wrong about for the last few years is how quickly the U.S. producers can bring this new crude oil on the water. Everybody has gotten it wrong. Everybody has underestimated the pace of bringing it on and the volume uh, that's being brought on. So um, they, they can do this for a few more years.
0: So what's the thing, Walter, that you're going to keep watching most closely, let's say, over the next few months?
3: Well, there's also a... Polit- a, an economic component to all of this. That the stock market, by any measure of valuation, is priced for perfection. And anything less than perfection is likely to bring some downside. And the other big component to how crude oil is priced is priced according to economic expectations. And right now, euphoria pretty much dominates the markets. But the Dow last peaked way back in January 26th. Mm. And uh, I, I think there's a problem here. I think there's a Uh, given how richly priced the markets are, according to things like Schiller P.E., and given the seasonal component that that there's that old sell-by may then go away in the stock market, I think any retreat in equities is likely to have a negative impact on
0: crude oil prices. Walt Zimmerman at ICAP, thank you so much. This is Bloomberg. Yeah, just when you thought things couldn't get any messier, while well, some news today showed, yep, it indeed can. Shares of CBS, though, are up today. This is, uh, it sued National Amusements. That's the controlling shareholder of CBS, also the controlling shareholder of Viacom, which, of course, wants to merge with CBS. Yep, keep it straight. Paul Sweeney is U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst. He is keeping it straight. He's, uh, part of our Bloomberg Intelligence Group, our in house research and analytical group. Um, what is CBS up to?
4: I think CBS is. This is their nuclear option. This is the. I think the last card they really have to play here. CBS, you know, all along, Les Moonves and CBS is saying, okay, if my control shareholder is pushing me to merge with Viacom, okay, that's one thing. Um, but if that's going to happen, I want to, you know, under my terms, um, because CBS is a stronger standalone company than, than Viacom. Uh, so Les Moonvis and CBS are saying, if you're going to force us to do this, it's going to be on our terms, our financial terms and on our management terms. And that's the last part, the management terms has really been a sticking point. Les Moonvis wants his management team to run the combined company. Sherry Redstone, who controls the, both companies through National Amusement, says, no, no, I want a major role for the CEO of Viacom to maybe be the successor to Les uh, going forward. Um, So that's kind of where we are in a contention there. And and that's really been a deal breaker, that last point about what role will Bob Backish have, if any, in the combined company. Um, And that's been the the, the tipping point here. And and I think what we're seeing is this suit today shows that neither CBS uh, or Viacom are, are close at all to a deal.
0: Why are they so contentious? Why does it seem like Sherry Renstone hates Les Moonves, or does she?
4: You know, I don't think it's necessarily hate, but maybe it is t- after today's news. I'm sure they were shocked um, over there at uh, National Amusements and, and Viacom by this move, because again, this really is the nuclear option for CBS here, basically calling out uh, Sherry Redstone and the board uh, at National Amusement.
0: Mary Gabelli, who invested in media, said it's a clever move. It's a clever <laughs> move,
4: it, it, and uh, it's, it's really interesting. But I just think it's, you know, again, Viacom is a, is a flawed company, and CBS, up until this merger uh, speculation came along, the stock was singing right along over the last five or six years, uh, so they are saying basically, again, if you're going to force us to do this deal, it's going to be on our terms. And Sherry Redstone is saying, wait a minute. Remember, I own you. I own both companies. Um, so, you know, the question is what is the response potentially coming out of Sherry Redstone and, and National Amusements? And the nuclear option on her side would be less you're fired.
0: Does it – ouch. Does it matter what the rest of shareholders want? I mean I, I understand um, – that National Amusements is kind of the controlling shareholder here, right? Right. Of both companies. Right. So does it matter what other investors
4: think? It, at the end of the day, it it does not. But uh, clearly, you know, to have any support for this combined company going forward, it has to be um, some type of reasonably structured deal, and it has to be positioned in the best way possible, uh, unless, again, believes that it is with his management team running it. Um, you know, so but if, you, if you're Sherry Redstone, you're looking around at the at the media landscape, and you're seeing, you know, Comcast looking at Fox, and Disney has a bid for 21st Century Fox, and they're looking for Sky, and uh, you recognize that your move, your most logical move, to. to compete in this consolidating world is to get this deal done uh, as soon as possible. Um, but again, there's a lot of egos here, and um, and it's a really a, a question of who's going to blink here. And again, it looks like Les Mubis and CBS have, have really thrown down the gauntlet this time.
0: Sumner Rebstone, completely out of the picture?
4: That's that's the belief in the marketplace, that Sherry's uh, you know, representing him in, in the interests of national amusements.
0: I mean, you as a media analyst who understand these companies, and you've seen them together apart and now trying supposedly trying to get back together again, although it doesn't look uh, like it this certainly on on this money that it's going to happen um the Better Company is CBS?
4: The Better Company is CBS. It's a cleaner company. It, it doesn't have nearly the risk associated with cord cutting. That's primarily because it's not in the basic cable TV business. Uh, so it's in broadcast television with CBS, which has its own challenges. But broadcast television is really benefiting from something called retransmission revenues, which means that they're actually getting paid by the cable operators and the satellite operators that, to, to carry their uh, broadcast network. And that was not the case up until you know five or six years ago. So that's a growing source of revenue for CBS. They they have Showtime. Uh, which is also a, a very good business for them. And they've really kind of focused on uh, their international distribution business. So they've actually got some a, a nice, clean story. They are clearly not big enough to be a long-term player in the consolidating media business. And uh, you know, I think a lot of CBS investors would say, I like a standalone CBS better because it's a better standalone company, mm-hmm. number one. And number two, it could potentially be a takeout candidate in a consolidating marketplace.
0: That's what I was going to ask you, Paul. Is there somebody else who could come into the picture to kind of complicate or help out here? Here or n-
4: I think National Amusement, with their ownership stake in both companies, it's very unlikely. Right. I think the first step here has to be a combination of these two companies. And then maybe Sherry Redstone steps back after a year or two and says, gee, is this combined company uh, big enough uh, to really uh, you know, compete in, in a consolidating marketplace when I have to compete against you know Facebooks and Apples and, and Googles of the world, not just other media companies?
0: What's next? Just got about 20 seconds here. So um, what happens now? is it go to courts? I in think courts? We're gonna, I,
4: I, It looks like unless this is going to force these companies to to the table to negotiate, one option. The other option is it goes to court. God,
0: and it ain't over yet. No, it's not. Um, do you think this deal will ultimately get done?
4: I think it will ultimately get done because it really does make sense for both companies long term. Yeah. But uh, it, you know, right now, it does not look good.
0: Pretty messy. Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our New York studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm
1: in my car.
2: Is the drive to the close? That music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is the time for the drive to the close. Let's head to Milwaukee. Willie Delwich is managing director and investment strategist at Baird, and he joins us uh, as I mentioned on the phone from Milwaukee. Hey, nice to have you here with us. What's your assessment of the investment environment right now? <laughs>
5: You know, I think there's a lot of people that are, are trying to figure out um, what, whether or not you know, we're still in consolidation phase or, or whether we're, we've, we've made a bottom and, and are ready to, to start to rally, which, um, you know, was the experience of, of 2017. You know, you make a low pretty quickly and then, then it's higher after that. And I think a lot of people are um, still, still, weighing, still weigh, weighing, you know, what, what the next direction for the market is.
0: Well, what do you think the next direction for the market is? <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I,
5: I think the market will let us know when it's ready to rally and, and break out to new highs. And I, I don't see evidence of that yet. So I, I would um, I would be in the, the camp that, that I don't know if we need to, to go all the way lower again, but I don't see evidence yet that we're, that we're ready to – kind of resume this rally um that that we got used to all of last year.
0: Hey, what are the things that I think you've been noticing according to some notes that I've got is that in terms of on a technical basis we're not seeing as much upside vol- volume in comparison to downside volume. Is that the case?
5: yeah that that's very much the case and that's that's one of the things that i'm I'm looking at um as a, a clue from the market about whether or not it's it's ready to go We've had um i think we're up to about eight nine to one downside days where where we've had um, downside volume and excessive upside volume by by nine to one. We have yet to have a single nine to one upside day, and so um if if we were ready to to really get back in gear, I would expect to see at least two of those um, types of days come on board or, or see other evidence of, of this sort of breadth thrust um, environment and until we see that, um, I, I think it makes sense to continue to talk about consolidation and um, and, and, and not think that the market's ready to, to rally yet.
0: So if I take a look at the major market averages, I mean, we did have a rally last year. Uh, S&P is now up about 2% this year. But I think if I look at the NASDAQ, it's up about 7%. Um, yeah. Are you seeing you know parts of the market, sectors of the market, kind of separate from one another again?
5: Uh, yeah, a little bit of that. Um, you, you know, you've got um, the, the NASDAQ, like you said, is up. Up over seven percent it it made a new high in March um small caps are um at or near new highs right now, and so yeah you you have a little bit more um of, of a mixed bag i I would be hesitant to to go away from from looking at, at those indexes and saying okay those that's clearly what the market is i I guess I would um lean on the side of saying okay let's let's look at the s and p and what the message from the s and p is um for for most investors for um, an overall sense of the market.
0: I think you know one of the biggest factors that is what happens with interest rates, right? They're still low yes. on a historical basis, but they are moving higher, and we are yeah. seeing that. Dave Wilson, our stocks columnist, talked about you know the difference in terms of uh, the market yield, the S and P yield versus what you're seeing, you know, short term Treasuries. And you know there was a point where we weren't getting paid for anything to keep money in cash, and so we didn't yeah. as investors. But now yeah. it's kind of changing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it,
5: it very, very much is changing, and um, you, you don't need to be in stocks to, to make a yield at this point. You can um, be in cash or be in two-year treasuries, or so that there's other options, and so may, maybe it doesn't make sense from an investing perspective to. Um, rush right back into stocks and, and maybe be a little premature. The other side of that is, is that if you have a sharp rise in interest rates like uh, in the ten year um, that be that becomes an overt headwind for for stocks and so um, if, if we 're going to have upside volatility in rates, then maybe it makes sense to to kind of park your money in cash a little and and kind of let let the situation sell. Out.
0: So, Willie, is that what you're telling people who come to you with new money that you're saying maybe just leave it in cash for a while? Yeah, that's uh,
5: the, the, the tactical call that, that we um, are talking about for the second quarter is um, may, maybe it doesn't make sense to, to automatically go into stocks right here. Let's um, let, let's wait a little bit. Leave, leave it in cash for now, um, and, and see if we get some good opportunities. And a message from stocks that that they're, it's ready ready to resume the the uptrend.
0: Are you anticipating any kind of um, economic downturn or recession in the near t- in the near future?
5: Is oh that no! Part of, is that no, part of the
0: call? No, that's not. No, part no, of No, no, no,
5: no. There's no no evidence that the economy is weakening. Um, it, it's more yeah. it's more that there's there's volatility, and so it, it doesn't pay right here to. Um, to, to ride that out, particularly when, when you're getting rewarded with a little bit of income from a cash perspective or from a, a short-term treasury perspective.
0: However, If you are in tech stocks, you're actually doing okay this year. So it, I guess it depends. Um, Willie, thank you. Willie Delwich, Managing Director Investment Strategist at Baird on the phone in Milwaukee. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.